Hello everyone. I am Sableen and you are listening to a podcast on pediatric cataract from the WSPS Connect 2. Pediatric cataract surgery has advanced by leaps and bounds with newer intraocular lenses and instrumentations over the last few decades. An expert panel from across the world discuss the gaps in our knowledge on this vast subject. Dr. Edward Wilson from USA describes the rationale for use of steroids postoperatively in children undergoing cataract surgery. Listen to Dr. Vladimir Pfeiffer illustrating a modification of the Yamani technique for subluxated lenses. We have Dr. Eric Botham decoding intraocular lens implantation in toddlers for us. Dr. Jagat Ram from India elucidates the surgical management of cataract related to PFV and Dr. Abhay Vasavara tells us how to deal with the posterior capsule in pediatric eyes. Let's listen to Dr. Ramesh Kekunaya and Dr. Deborah Vanderveen moderating a phenomenal panel discussing their views, ideas and strategies that the rest of us can follow. Thank you so much to all the speakers. Those were excellent talks. Uh, we have some time for questions and discussion among the panelists, which I think will be really interesting. Uh, one of the questions we have from an audience member we could take first. This is for Dr. Pfeiffer. What was your view on the Yamani technique versus a, an iris claw lens for patients with Marfan syndrome and lens subluxation? Thank you for a very re relevant question. I've been implanting artisan lenses for a long time. And about four years ago, I stopped that and I changed to Yamane technique because I think the surgery is less traumatic and the results are very good. So I would advise to do the Yamane at, at first in older population and then switch to the children. Uh, we had some cases of partial subluxation of the iris claw lenses, especially in the very um, child who jumped a lot. Uh, and we had some problems with the optic capture in Yamane technique. And I hope we will do, we will do better by putting this lens a little bit more behind the iris. I had a, a follow-up question to that actually for you myself. In many cases, I judge which uh, lens I like to put in by the eye size and the white to white. It makes me a little nervous in a large eye to use a Yamani technique. Um, but on the other hand, like you said, if they're very active and iris fixated lens may not be good. Do you think about eye size at all when you uh, use this technique? Uh I th these lenses are quite big, the haptics are big. And usually what Yamane does, he cuts away the haptics with the size lens. We don't do that. And I think that the haptics are long enough to fit also in, in the bigger eyes. We also did these implantations uh, in uh, myopic eyes in adult uh, population, and they worked good. And the, the flange is working very good. It's really stable. I just had uh, one more follow-up question, Dr. Pfeiffer, for you. Uh, you, you said it's a nice technique, uh, uh, just that uh, do you have any contraindication in, in terms of systemic disease of the child? 
For example, if the child has a severe Marfan syndrome where already the connective tissues are kind of not, the lamellae are not in place. So do you have any contraindication? And do you avoid in any age group of children this technique? Uh, I would do a contraindication in a very severe uveitic eyes. We usually measure the thickness of the sclera before going for this kind of surgery. And if the sclera is thin, I wouldn't go for this. And uh, what was the third question? Age group, any specific age group you, you try to implant? These children are mostly about five, six years old because they are all with ectopic lenses. I don't implant this in regular cataracts because their designers are very strong and the uh, implantation of the 3-piece IOL with uh, posterior optic capture and anterior vitrectomy uh, works very good. Okay. Uh, the, the one, one more finding you said in the talk is that uh, it's an interesting thing when the patient moves from a darker to brighter areas, uh, you can see capture. Probably that means that the lens is not in the plane. It's, it's may not be in the retropupillary area. How many percentage of your patients this uh, iris capture happens? I had this in, in two cases. One disappeared by itself after three to four weeks and it was alternate, alternating. I think it is due to the, uh, uh, the, the movement of the iris, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and one is persistent and I will have to operate on it. Okay, thank uh, you. On, uh, I just... on iridodonesis, you know, it, it depends on the iridodonesis. Because in this guy, the lens is perfectly uh, aligned. Um, Ramesh, can I comment also? Yes, please. Um, yes please. In, in the adult world, at least, I've, I've heard several talks where um, they're just starting to move their incisions slightly further from the limbus to reduce the iris, the, uh, the pupil capture um, option. So it may be that, that just slight uh, variations moving it a, a little bit away from the, uh, the limbus on, uh, on the flange might help also. Yeah. Yes, you're, okay. you're right. We moved uh, from two millimeters to 2.3 millimeters now, and uh, this is less happening less or not in these cases anymore. Dr. Wilson, I, go ahead, go ahead, Debbie. I was just gonna say that's definitely a good uh, technique and um, requires a lot of finessing and expertise to do it right. I was just gonna bring up another question for Dr. Jagat Ram from the audience, which was, uh, and those were very difficult cases. Some of them I would have referred to my retina colleagues because of the large posterior stock. So I wondered if you had advice about that for the general cataract surgeon. And secondly, uh, the question was, do you do a peripheral iridectomy or iridotomy in these cases? Yeah, uh, thank you very much. Uh, 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 peripheral, regarding peripheral iridectomy, those children where we keep the child aphakic, there we may like to do small uh, peripheral iridectomy. And uh, uh, some of the, uh, if IOL is, uh, almost 100% we place IOL in the bag or if we place uh, in the sulcus that is captured. Uh, so by and large, we are not doing a peripheral iridectomy. We are doing in those 
children where key where we keep the uh, child affected or in some of the other children where people cannot be dilated uh, these are some of the cases and uh, all these cases of combined uh, persistent fetal vasculature we take retinal consultation such as uh, if there is a stalk as i showed uh, what happens that after we cauterize the stalk and uh, it is left uh, then they are these patients are followed up majority of the patient uh, it uh, regressed in the post operative period otherwise uh, uh, there, there are some of the children where there is a traction on the retina they are uh, invariably they are shown to video retinal specialist if they advised any inter intervention surgical intervention they go ahead with the surgical intervention uh, but these children are shown majority of them they do not need uh, retinal surgery yeah thank you thank you for that i, I think all the talks were amazing i, I just have uh, two questions one from dr wilson again fantastic talk uh, you definitely said that uh, one size does not fit all the steroid the, the decision making in terms of steroids and uh, what by experience i think uh, most of you will agree that uh, when you get uh, used to doing this surgery and you become an expert the inflammation level probably becomes less and less because uh, you have this experience uh, as far uh, as compared to somebody is a new trainee when them the in the beginning the entry exit and the fluctuation is much more what percentage of your uh, cases get uh, steroids that's number 1 number question uh, number 2 is uh, what's the difference between intracameral dexamethasone versus trimethylone and the related part is do you do you uh, inject steroids to reduce the inflammation or to reduce the visual axis opacification well i i think the um uh, in my cases they all get some steroid um it, it in some form or another um most commonly i prescribe prednisolone acetate four times a day for four weeks i usually don't taper it if at four weeks there's still a little bit of inflammation then i'll do a taper and keep it keep it on a few more a few more weeks um in in the intracameral setting uh dex dexamethasone is um is weaker than trimethylone but it also is less likely to cause a pressure spike it's uh, it's less likely to block the visual axis if i don't do an iol in an infant then i don't use trimethylone because it'll go in the vitreous and it'll stay too long so i only use trimethylone if i have an implant and i'm sure that the material will stay in the anterior chamber because it stays around in the vitreous way way too long um uh so i use one or the other uh the 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 dexamethasone or the trimethylone not uh, not both um and um uh, i agree that when you're first starting use as much steroid as you have to and then um start reducing it i mean i think there are some people that continue to pour in steroid from orals subconj in, in the eye and 
and, and, and tell the parent to do something they probably can't do, you know, doing it every hour, every two hours. Um, when you get experience, start dropping back. You really don't need all that steroid, I think. Thank you. Uh, I, I, I agree. I, go ahead. Please go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I agree that uh, we need to take a call depending upon. We, are, we have all of these options, intracameral, periocular or subconjunctival and even post-operative, uh, you know, whatever times depending upon the inflammation. I think that call is very important. That's all I had to say, Debbie. Go ahead. Yeah, I wanted to agree. I want to thank you. I hadn't thought about using the um, dexamethasone intracamerally. Um, and my only word to people around the world is please be sure that your products are preservative free. Um, we've had cases where the pharmacist substituted something accidentally and it was not appropriate for intraocular use. So around the world, we all have different medications. Please check that. Yeah. But I, when I heard from Dr. Professor O'Keefe about using triamcinolone, it changed my world of outcomes. So for young kids and uncooperative patients, I think they can have intracameral triamcinolone and probably not even need drops. It works so well. Yeah, one more thing I was curious, uh, Dr. Wilson, is uh, you said you will, if the inflammation is very low, you gave uh, four times for a week, four weeks. And then if the inflammation is uh, still there, you continue it for another three or four weeks. If there is no inflammation at the one month, end of the month, do you stop it? I or stop, do you yeah. Taper? I don't, I don't okay. taper. I don't see, okay. you know, I know it's common to taper, but if, you, if you're only using it for four weeks, it's unnecessary uh, yeah. to taper. That's a very, very interesting thing because some of the patients, when we uh, advise here, they use the same dose, maybe four or six times. And then when they come for the six weeks follow-up, they just say that I've used it for a month and then I've stopped. So this is incidentally happens. Most of these patients, they don't have any kind of inflammation that, that happens in the practical life. I had uh, one more question to Dr. Uh, Bothan. Uh, a very nice summary of uh, conclusion of cautious confidence in toddlers. Uh, there is one observation uh, in developing countries, uh, the pediatric cataract or the congenital cataract comes more in the later because of the age of the presentation is a little bit on the later. I just wanted to know what is in your practice, what's the prevalence of a toddler presenting as cataract compared to an infant presenting in the five weeks or first four weeks? Is there any difference? I, I think I'm sure there'll be a difference between the prevalence of both of this. Yeah, I think around the world, the um, the level of vision screening programs within a society uh, often um, delivers a different frequency or, or arrival into our offices in terms of the prevalence of cataracts. Um, I think bilateral cataracts commonly uh, present earlier too in terms of their overall visual functioning, potentially associations with nystagmus or other eye anomalies like microcornea. But uh, the unilaterals are... are can be tricky. And I, I would say we all see them probably later than we want to in, in different situations. And no doubt about it, when you look at the studies around the world, places with less robust vision screening programs typically have larger um, age groups for their mean or median um, 
uh, occurrence or, or frequency or when a cataract is performed. And so I, you know, I think it's very site dependent and based on the vision screening programs in your community. Yeah, I think one more factor is the referral pattern. When it is from ophthalmologist to ophthalmologist, it's different. When it's from pediatricians to pediatric ophthalmologists, it's different. Uh, thank you. Uh, Debbie, do you have any other questions? No, I don't see Dr. Vasavada here, but I, I don't know if someone wants to handle this question about um, this posterior capsulotomy and whether vitrectomy is needed or not, exactly the technique, how big should the posterior capsule or opening be? Um, anyone want to comment on those items? Yes, if, if I can, I would like to, uh, to congratulate uh, Abhe for his perfect uh, presentation about the posterior capture that he moved to this technique. We're using this technique for 25 years already. And in toddlers, we have zero opti optical axis uh, obscuration. So what is done is anterior capsular axis and the posterior capsular axis should be about four millimeters. And then we, we always do the anterior vitrectomy. Always anterior vitrectomy and then implant, open the capsular back with the viscoelastic, implant the interocular lens into the capsular back, and then perform the posterior optic capture. And with this technique, I think, uh, or I know we had no uh, obscuration optical axis. And uh, in my hands, I think that the posterior vitrectomy is very important. Otherwise, it can be, the vitreous can be scaffolded for the lens epithelial cells. I'm curious about whether you like to do this vitrectomy from an anterior or posterior approach and what the panel does. I, I prefer posterior. It is no need to open the uh, pars plana because you have an opening of anterior capsule. Then, okay, at first you do anterior capsular axis, then you take the lens out, you do the posterior capsular axis. Here you have an open place to go into the vitreous. Why then opening on the, on the, on the pars plana? I think it has no sense. So it's much easier to do it from the uh, front. Yeah, maybe easier to do it from the front, but um, uh, some of us, when we used to do that uh, more often, you would you'd inadvertently on, a, on occasion uh, drag vitreous back with you as you're exiting. And, and that's eliminated by the pars plana. I like to remove all the OVD and then, and then open the poster capsule from, uh, uh, from behind. And if you're going to do a vitrectomy, most of the retina folks would say, um, cut it where it lives. Don't, don't drag it forward. So there, there's, there's certainly a place for it. I would say that. Yes, yeah, I, agree. I, I think if I, I, I can comment, if I can comment just a bit, the problem is that you have infusion on, then you, you hydrate the vitreous and vitreous comes in front. If you don't have infusion on, if you do just, uh, Without infusion, vitrectomy, you get a little bit hypotony. You get the vitreous out, but the vitreous doesn't count in front, and then you push it back with the vitreoelastic. That's the trick, how to do it. Yeah. And I, okay. I, may, I may only comment that uh, this is a panel of experts. I uh, was the fellowship director, and in teaching new surgeons for this technique, I feel so much happier with the pars plana technique, because you really do have to be efficient to do it from an anterior approach, I think. And one thing just to highlight, I, I, you know, I think the importance of 
uh, there's a value in continuing to learn about protecting the anterior vitreous space at the time of posterior capsulotomy. I think we all have to be sensitive to long-term results in terms of when that setting is appropriate versus has increased retinal risks over the life of the child. Yeah, I think uh, both approach uh, works. It's just that uh, you need to develop that skill. And then if you are used to one technique, maybe changing it to other technique is a bit difficult. I think uh, we are almost coming to an end. Uh, I just want uh, one pearl of wisdom with regards to pediatric cataract to all our delegates, uh, just 10 seconds from each of you. We can start from Dr. Jagatram. Uh, yeah, definitely. I think uh, surgery is one of the part, important part in pediatric cataract, but I think uh, their follow-up is uh, most important. Uh, just uh, it is not that we do surgery and leave uh, follow-up. I think we have to do long-term follow-up. Eric? Yeah, I'd say uh, toddlers can have IOLs and we, as long as with careful technique and appropriate consent, um, I think they work well and the risks are low. Dr. Pfeiffer? In my hands, implant, taking the lens totally out and implanting it like Yamane is much safer than implanting the capsule retention ring, Sioni capsule retention ring. I did this about 25 years ago or 20 years ago and out of my children, everybody dislocated 10 to 12 years after the surgery. So due to the rest of the zones or due to the suture that was uh, damaged. Okay, thank you so much, uh, everyone. Thank you to all the speakers. Uh, it's a most educative session. We could not cover all the questions. Uh, we covered some of them. Uh, we can't uh, uh, discuss more because it's already two minutes over. Thank you, Dr. Vanderveen, uh, for co-moderating uh, this one. Have a good evening and a good morning, all of you. And uh, enjoy the rest of the sessions. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Bye-bye. An elite class of pediatric cataract surgeons have summarized a lot of tips for us in this podcast. Whatever technique you choose for a subluxated lens in a pediatric eye, it is important to keep in mind the eye size, the site of our parsplenar incision, and the thickness of sclera. We can seek the opinion of our retina colleague when we are dealing with cases of PFP-related cataract and cauterization of the stalk may be required. Post-operative care is as important as the surgery itself in pediatric cataract, and one size doesn't fit all as far as the steroid regimen is concerned. When we are doing anterior vitrectomy, we should remember to cut the vitreous where it is and should avoid dragging it to avoid posterior segment complications. To stay updated, please subscribe to our channel and thank you for listening.